we have once again the opportunity today to partake of the Lord's table. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 28, that we are to examine ourselves before we partake, that we might not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And man is to judge himself based on self-examination. Where does he stand with the Christ? Later in uh, the second epistle to the Corinthian church, Paul says in chapter 13, verse number 5, that we are to judge ourselves, we are to prove ourselves, we are to test ourselves to see whether or not Jesus is really in us. Well, we've had the, the, the wonderful opportunity over the last four weeks to look at the, at the fourth warning in the book of Hebrews. And they all deal with examination to see whether or not you truly love the Lord, to see whether or not you are a true follower of the Lord. We, we told you four weeks ago, and we told you when we began our series uh, in the book of Hebrews, that Hebrews is all about the explanation of, of who Christ is. Uh, he is supreme and he is sufficient. It, it's all about the exhortation as, as a result as to who he is, what we what we do. It's all about expectation, knowing that Jesus is going to come again. It's all about exaltation, exalting Christ as Lord and Savior, but it's also about examination because the writer of Hebrews wants us to examine our lives. That's why we have the warning passages. That's why he puts them in, in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 3 and 4 and Hebrews 5 and 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, that we might gather together and examine our lives in light of what the word of the Lord says. And so as we gather together today, before we partake of the Lord's table, it gives us one more opportunity to go through and complete this fifth warning, or excuse me, fourth warning, and to examine our lives in light of what the word of the Lord says. This fourth warning is all about the danger of, of willful sin, which is basically the definition of apostasy. We began by looking at what is the description of apostasy. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The writer describes for us what apostasy is. It's having come to the knowledge of who Christ is, maybe even believing in who Jesus is, maybe even having received Jesus, and yet, in spite of that knowledge, in spite of that truth, deciding to continue to sin willfully and to fall away from the Lord. So he describes for us apostasy. He's been building on this from Hebrews chapter 2, lest you, lest you drift by and, and, and neglect the opportunity, this great salvation, and not give yourself to it. Or in Hebrews 3, you, you harden your heart, as in the day of provocation in the wilderness. Don't do that. Or in chapter 3, having, having tasted of this heavenly gift, having been a partaker of the Holy Spirit, having been enlightened to fall away, it's impossible to renew you again to repentance, now he comes to the place that if you are continuing in sin, you just want to willfully sin against the Lord in spite of all the knowledge, in spite of all the truth, in spite of everything that you've seen and heard and everything that I've said to you up to now, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He gives us the repercussions. That's point number two. He says, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Why does he say that? Because if you continue in willful sin, you're an adversary. You're an adversary of the Lord. You're not a friend of the Lord. You're his enemy. So he says there's a, there's a fury of fire awaiting you because you are an adversary of the Lord. Therefore, these are the repercussions. There's an absence of a sacrifice, and there is an assurance of hell's fire. So he gives us the description of apostasy. Then he gives us the repercussions of apostasy. And then we gave you an illustration of apostasy by looking at the life of Judas. If you were with us three weeks ago, we talked to you about Judas and his life, a man who was with Jesus, who was chosen by the Lord, who was a disciple of the Lord. And instead of becoming an apostle, he became an apostate. He fell away from the Lord. Okay? He denied the Lord. He turned his back on the Lord. We looked at Demas as another illustration. Having loved this present world, Paul says, he hath forsaken me. And so it's good to know the illustrations in Scripture to help us understand the repercussions of those who decide to turn away from what they know to be true because they've heard the truth, they've heard the gospel, they know the gospel, they've even maybe believed the gospel and yet they want to continue in willful sin. So it's good to have biblical illustrations of that because there was no more privileged person in all the world than, than the man Judas. And every one of the apostles believed that Judas was a trustworthy person because when Christ said that there was going to be one that betrayed him, none of them said, it must be Judas. They all thought it was them because they did not know who it was. That's how deceptive willful sin can be. That's how deceptive apostasy is. You can even deceive your own self. And so we move from the illustration of apostasy to, to look at the clarification surrounding apostasy because we talked about the unpardonable sin, a sin that's unforgivable by our Lord because he said it's blasphemy against the Spirit of God. It's attributing uh, God's work to Satan. We talked about that in Matthew chapter 12 to help you understand a clarification between the unpardonable sin and apostasy because while you can't commit that unpardonable sin in Matthew 12 today because Christ is not with us, but he also says that this will happen in the, in the next age to come, which would be the kingdom age for them because they knew nothing of the church age. When Christ again, is present upon the earth where you can blaspheme his name in his presence and attribute his work to Satan, there is a sin of apostasy. And while Judas never attributed Christ's work to Satan, he did apostatize the faith. He did fall away from that which he knew to be true. And so we've talked about that. So there'd be a clarification about apostasy and the unpardonable sin. And then we moved to, last week, the admonition. And the admonition is found in verse number 28 when it says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We took you back to Numbers 15 to show you how they killed the man who picked up sticks on Sunday. So if they kill a man, stone a man who picks up sticks on Sunday, he says this, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified, or he was sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. He says, here's your admonition. 
You cannot, you cannot refuse to believe in the Son of God. You cannot regard the blood of Christ as unclean. And you cannot resist the beauty of the Spirit of grace and expect to go to heaven. You just can't. There's a much severer punishment for you because you're going to fall away in light of the entire Scripture, knowing the truth of the gospel, all about the arrival of the Messiah. And that's why the book of Hebrews is so important for this Jewish people, to know that their Messiah had come. And all that he did, they could not, they could not refuse to believe in the Son of God. Very important statement. Why? Because that would mean they would trample underfoot the Son of God. They would treat the Son of God as if he was worthless, as if, as if he was worth nothing. In other words, they would, they would see him as the Pharisees saw him in, in John chapter 5. Remember way back in Luke chapter 2? Remember there's only one recorded incident in the life of Christ after his birth and before his, 30 year, his ministry began at the age of 30, and that's when he was 12 years of age. And it's the only recorded incident of the life of Christ because it's the incident that makes the most sense and it's the most important incident. Because he tells his mother, don't you know, I had to be about my father's business. That statement right there tells you that Jesus is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is equal in nature to who God is. And so when you come to John chapter 5, at the pool of Bethesda, there the tide would change against the Messiah. It was there in the pool of Bethesda. If you've been there to the house of mercy, it's called the house of mercy. If you've been to Israel with me, you know where those five porticos are. And we stand outside of, of uh, the pool of Bethesda and we talk about John chapter 5. Because there he heals a man who 38 years had been paralyzed. And he takes up his bed and walks. And Christ says, do you want to be made well? The guy says, of course I do, but I have no one to throw me in. Thinking that if they were the first one in, when the water would stir, they'd be healed. But Christ says, take up your bed and walk. And he walks. The Pharisees see him. Instead of saying, wow, look at you, man. You can walk. This is great. You're healed. They say, you can't take up your pallet and walk on the Sabbath day. What are you doing? You can't do that. I know you've been paralyzed for 38 years, but you just can't get up and walk on the Sabbath day. Get back down on top of your pallet. But see, they said, who healed you? He said, I don't know. I idea who healed me. Guy came to me and said, take up your pallet and walk. So I did. I've been healed. It would be later in the story that he knows who Christ is. And when the Pharisees come to Christ, he says, my father is working and so am I. Ooh, that's not good the Pharisees. Why? Because from that point on, they plotted to kill him. Why? Because it says, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but here's the clincher, he was making himself equal with the Father. See, no self-respecting Jew would ever call God his Father in a personal sense. He couldn't. In a national sense, they did. But never did any, any Jew call God his Father in a personal sense until Jesus came along. Why? Because as the Son of God, he is equal in nature to God himself. He is God in the flesh. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what you're doing? You're refusing the Son of God. You are refusing to believe in the truth about the Son of God. You are trampling underfoot the Son of God. You are treating him as if he's not God in the flesh. You're treating him as if he's just another man. You can't do that. And 
On top of that, you cannot regard the blood of Christ as unclean or as common. For he says these words. He says, you can't regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he, which is not the person himself, but Christ, he, Christ, was sanctified or set apart. It was his blood that set him apart. It was his blood that was pleasing to the Father. It was his death that pleased the Father, right? And so what you're doing is you are regarding the blood that he shed as unclean, as common, as worthless, and meaning nothing. In other words, you're taking his sacrifice and making it just like all the millions of sacrifices that took place over the last several hundred years that could not give you access into the presence of God. But this one, this one sacrifice gives you access into the presence of God. But you will not accept it. And then he says, in which he has sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. So you're actually going to refuse to believe in the beauty of God's spirit. Zechariah 12, 10, the spirit of grace is called the spirit of grace and supplication. And so you, you, you're going to sin against the spirit of God. You can't do that. So he gives the admonition. You must understand where you're going with this. And, and like a great surgeon having, having cut them open, right, stitched them back together, he's now going to give them words of encouragement and give them how it is they cannot become apostate. So he gives them what we'll call in our outline the prevention from apostasy. He wants them to understand you don't have to go down this route. You don't have to deny who Christ is. You don't have to turn your back on the Messiah. No. This is what he says. Verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction or to perdition, but to those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. He says, listen, if you don't want to apostatize the faith, you need to look backward, you need to look forward, and you need to look inward. You need to look backward and remember. You need to look forward and rejoice. And you need to look inward and re-examine whether or not you have genuine faith. He wants to wrap it all together and say, look, I don't want you to, to defrock the faith. I don't want you to turn your back on the Messiah. As he gives this fourth warning, he's bringing them into the into the. The next chapter, of course, it's not a chapter when he, when he writes the letter, but, but it's, it's, it's the next chapter because it goes into the great Hebrew hall of faith, right? 
He's going to go in this long dissertation of faith because he wants to understand genuine faith. All faith works, right? All faith is evidenced in the life of people who have faith. And so Hebrews 11, and we'll take, you know, two weeks on Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and then we're going to go through each character one at a time, each and every week to show you exactly how they exemplified their faith, how they believed in the Lord, how they followed the Lord, how they served the Lord. Yes, sometimes they failed. But by and part, they always looked to their upcoming reward, always looking for the promise, always living in obedience to what God had already said. That's what faith is. And so before he gets there, he says, listen, I want to let you know something. I don't want you to fall back. I don't want you to lose your confidence. Remember, he began with a positive response in verses 19 to 25. You know, let us draw near. Let us come in faith, right? Let us hold fast. Let us cling to our hope. And then let us consider what? Love. How to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's a positive response. But he quickly goes into the negative response because he doesn't want them, he wants them to understand the implications of not following the Lord, but of falling away from the Lord. Because remember, the warning passages are giving because there were many professors in the audience. There were a few possessors, but many professors. And there were even some protesters. They would protest the truth. And so he wants them to understand how they can possess Christ as Lord and Savior, how they can embrace the Messiah. And this should encourage every single one of us because all of us know people who, who profess Christianity but don't live Christianity. We know those who have protested against Christianity because they have fallen away from the faith and they don't want to follow the Lord anymore. But the hope is, the hope is this, that as long as you have breath, there's an opportunity for you to respond. Because none of us knows. I'll never know if you apostatize the faith. The Lord knows, but I don't know. My job is just to warn you about the repercussions, to warn you about what's available or what's going to happen next if you continue in disobedience. My job is to lay out for you the opportunity and how to prevent yourself from falling away. First of all, look backward and remember how it was at the very beginning. That's what he does. Listen to what he says. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, okay, they were enlightened. Remember Hebrews chapter 6? You once being enlightened and fall away, it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. So now he goes back to that phrase, uses it again, you were enlightened. Remember that? Remember when you first heard about the Messiah? Remember when you first understood about the sacrifice that would save you from your sin? Remember those former days? Remember what it was like? Like Matthew chapter 13, those people who with joy jumped on the Jesus bandwagon. They received the word with joy. They heard the gospel and they wanted what the gospel offered. And so they received the word with joy. But when the sun would beat down, when there'd be affliction and tribulation and persecution, it says they would fall away. They would not persevere. They would not endure. Why? Because they couldn't endure. Why couldn't they? Why? Because the redeemed, let me say this last week, the redeemed remain 
with Christ because the Redeemer reigns within the Christian. If the Redeemer reigns in you, he's always indwelling you. He's always compelling you. He's always telling you exactly what to do. And so the reason the Christian remains with the Christ, the Redeemer remains because Christ, the Redeemer, reigns in him. We have fallen the Lord. We serve the Lord. And when God's in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, there's always that compulsion. There's always that instruction. There's always that conviction that says, you're going the wrong way. You got to go back. That's why you don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? That's why you, you come in faith, you cling to hope, and you consider love. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Why? We're always doing this. We want you to hear the truth, know the truth, believe the truth. We're going to constantly motivate you, stimulate you, and move you on to maturity because we want you to know the Christ. Make sure that what you have professed is truly what is genuinely in you. So important. That's why the Bible is so clear on examination. He says these words. He says, you were enlightened and you endured a great conflict of suffering. Partly by being made a spectacle, being made a, a theatrical appearance because of the tribulation. Through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. In other words, you even were a part of those who were likewise suffering persecution. You were along with everybody else. Remember that? He wants them to look backward and remember how it was. He says, for you even showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. There's something before you. And maybe he's referring to 49 AD when, when uh, the emperor Claudius ran the Jews out of Rome. And Paul refers to it in Acts chapter 18. Maybe he's talking about that time in which they had their property seized and they were persecuted. He's saying, remember where it was when you first heard you were enlightened as to who the Christ was and you got excited about it and you jumped on the Jesus bandwagon and you even suffered with those who suffered and you even had your property seized. You thought, man, this is great. This is where we're going. He says, look, there's a lasting reward for those who continue on. That's why he says these words. He says, do not throw away your confidence with which there is great reward. Don't just look backward and remember, look forward and rejoice. Look forward because you can't afford to lose your confidence. Why? You can't afford to lose that which, which you've, you've said you believe. And the reason is simply because of what Christ promises. You see, there's always something about the believer. What is it a true believer has? He has an anticipation. He has a longing for the coming of the Messiah and the opportunity to receive the reward that he brings with him when he comes. You see, so many times people don't have that longing for the arrival of the Messiah. If you don't have that longing, there's a good chance you don't know the Lord. There's a good chance you don't know the Lord because you don't love the Lord. Paul says the crown of righteousness is in store for all those who love his appearing. There's a love 
of Messiah. So much so you love for him to come. You long for him to come. You live as if he's coming today. It's all about wanting Christ to come. If you don't have that passion and desire within you, you have to examine your life and say, do I love the Lord? Am I committed to the Lord? Do I trust the Lord? Do I love him so much I want him to be back even today? So he says these words. He says, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you are in need of endurance. Listen, in, with endurance, you don't earn your salvation. Endurance is the evidence of your salvation. You can't earn salvation, but if you are enduring, if you are pressing on, if you are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that endurance evidences the fact that you are kept by the power of God. Your endurance does not give you eternal security. Your endurance evidences that you are eternally secure. That's so important to understand that. Because all throughout Scripture, that's what it's about. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You heard the gospel. You were saved by the gospel. You stand in the gospel, Right? Unless, of course, you fall away. And if you fall away, it's because you believed in vain. Your belief was worthless. So there's that self-examination. And then you go over to the book of Colossians, the first chapter, 21st verse. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith. If you are continuing in the faith, you evidence the fact that you have been saved by the blood of Christ. If you endure through tribulation, if you endure through persecution, if you endure through difficult times and hardship, if you keep on keeping on, you are evidence the fact that you are truly born again because the reason the Redeemer remains with Christ is because the Redeemer reigns within Christ. And the Redeemer is the omnipotent God of the universe who keeps compelling, keeps indwelling, and keeps telling everything you need to know about following him as your Lord and Savior. So important. He says, look, look backward and remember when you were enlightened. And now I want you to look forward and I want you to rejoice in what's before you. Because if you love the Lord, there is something there you can't wait to hold on to, to obtain. And then he says this, Hebrews 11. He says, for yet in a very while he who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. By faith. Look inward. Look inward and re-examine whether or not you have genuine faith because people who follow me, they live by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. And what is faith? Faith is believing in what God has already said. Faith is trusting obedience. I trust in what God has said, and now I obey what God has said. 
That's what faith is. And we're going to see that all throughout Hebrews 11. Through every character that's there. As we examine their lives, every one of them trusted in the Lord. Every one of them obeyed the Lord. Why? Because they believed in what God said. And they had less revelation than you and I have. We have the completed revelation. They had to wait for God to speak. God's already spoken. He's given us his word. We know exactly what he says. And so he says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If he shrinks back, if he falls away, my soul has no pleasure in him. Why? Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please the Lord. Why? You can't please the Lord without faith. Faith is believing in what God has said. I might not understand what God has said. Who cares? I believe what he says. I might understand the, the cross and the resurrection, the triune nature of God, the omnipotence of God. I might not understand all that stuff in my own rational pea brain. But listen, I believe in what the Bible says. That's why faith is a gift, right? That's why faith is a completed gift of God that allows you to believe in what God has said. And those who do not have the gift, what? They wrestle with election and predestination. They wrestle with all those things. They don't understand them and they, 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 they can't come to grips with those things. Why? They have not been granted the gift of faith to believe in what God has said. Simple as that. So you pray that God would grant them the gift to open their eyes. Why? Remember 2 Corinthians 4? What does Satan do? He blinds the mind of the unbeliever so he doesn't believe in the deity, the glory of the Christ. He wants to blind the mind of the unbeliever so he doesn't recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because once you recognize that Christ is God in the flesh, you understand the identity of the Messiah, you can understand the ministry of the Messiah. Once you understand the identity and ministry of the Messiah, now you understand your responsibility before the Messiah. And the responsibility is what? To, by faith, trust and believe what he has said. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I have no pleasure in him. But then he says this. But we are not those who shrink back to perdition. Remember, Jesus was called a son of perdition, the Antichrist, son of perdition. It's a word for destruction. But of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. There are those who believe, and there are those who believe in faith. There are those who believe, and there are those who believe and evidence their belief by perseverance and endurance and continuing on. The writer of Hebrews says, look, I know I've cut you open. I know I've told you about the fire and the fury of the fire of judgment. I know I, I've told you that there, there's going to be an absence of any sacrifice for sin if you fall away and you continue in willful sin. But let me tell you this. Just look backwards and remember when you were first enlightened. And then I want you to look forward and realize and rejoice in the reward that can be yours. And then I want you to look inward and re-examine where you stand with the Christ. Do you have genuine believing faith? Do you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's why Hebrews 11 becomes such a pivotal chapter in the whole book to show you enduring faith. 
what it looks like. Remember, all throughout the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, 3.14, Hebrews 4.14, Hebrews 6.11 and 12, he keeps going back to endurance, continuance, steadfastness. Why? He's just reminding them over and over again, listen, when you give your life to Christ, you stay with the Christ. You hang on to the Christ. You depend on the Christ. And that's what makes the book of Hebrews such a practical, beautiful book because it opens up to us the beauty of the Messiah and what our response to him should be like. And so when you look at this portion of Scripture, he concludes this fourth warning by helping you understand there are people who believe and there have been people who have received the Christ. But they haven't received him in faith and into the perseverance of the soul. There is a difference. There are many people, read John's gospel. Drew will be here next week. He'll preach in John's gospel, John chapter 7, right? He'll talk to you about the people who believed in the Messiah. But Christ never committed himself to them because he knew what was in them, right? And so there's this self-examination, that re-examination, that when you come to the Lord's table, he's designed this for us, the body of believers, to gather together and say, is Jesus in me? Do I evidence the fact that Christ reigns in me? He lives in me. And I want to serve him and follow him all the days of my life. So the writer of Hebrews says, listen, I want to bring it all together for you, help you understand what you need to do, because I want to prevent you from falling away. So look backward, look forward, look inward, and make sure you have genuine, saving faith that perseveres, that endures. Remember, endurance does not earn you heaven. Endurance evidences the fact that you're going to heaven. Big difference. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for a chance to understand and grow more in the knowledge of your word. So much yet to even unfold. So much more to uncover. And yet, Lord, our time is short. Our prayer is that every one of us would examine our lives in light of the word of God. That we might live for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.